We've just sung a prayer. Now let's speak one once more to the Lord as we prepare to open the scriptures this morning. Lord, that is indeed our desire, our heart's cry, that you would speak, Lord, that you would build your church, that the earth would be filled, saturated, Father, with your glory. We can't can't conjure this up. We know, Lord, there's no amount of ingenuity or human giftedness. There's no amount of vision or strong leadership that can uh, move your church forward. God, we are utterly dependent upon your spirit. And so we pray now as we incline our hearts to your word, that by the power of that same spirit, Christ, that, that rose you from the grave, we pray that we would see truth, that we would agree with you, Lord, that we would call beautiful that which you call beautiful, that we would be warned and guarded, and and Lord, in areas where we are failing and falling, Father, strengthen our hands, strengthen our feet to follow you fully. Guard us from error now as we turn to your scriptures and guide us in the truth. In Jesus' name we ask, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, his name had been announced by an angel, which I think constitutes as a pretty big deal. Gabriel. Gabriel himself had come down from the very presence of God to declare, you shall call his name John. And his role... John's role would be altogether unique, unlike any before him or since. He was, after all, the forerunner to the Messiah, the one chosen from of old to prepare the way for the long-awaited Christ. This John, this baptizer, as they called him, rejected the allure of the world and its pleasures, wholly dedicating himself to the Lord, dressing in camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey. And John was the very picture of boldness. He did not flinch, did he? When confronting the religious establishment for their hypocrisy, he didn't flinch. When confronting the king himself, though the consequences would be steep, For crying out loud, this guy, John the Baptist, is filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And as a baby in utero, he leaps for joy when he encounters Mary carrying the preborn Messiah. I'd say this guy's legit, right? If ever there was a man of faith and action, it was John the Baptist. And yet, even John, had doubts. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We're picking up the glorious account of John's gospel in the 7th chapter, verse 18, Luke 7, 18. If you're using our church Bible here this morning, which you're welcome to do, and if you don't have a Bible at home, that's yours. Uh, take, take it with you, please. Read it. Believe it. But uh, that, that uh, page, Luke 7, 18, begins on page number 811 in those church Bibles. Today, we'll see how even the most stalwart faith can waver. 
And we'll see how Jesus responds to that wavering faith. Would you read with me, please, as we continue in Luke's Gospel? Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Take a moment to find it myself. Luke 7, 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? And that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Leopards are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the least one, excuse me, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. All right, this... Morning, we're simply going to follow a progression through this passage into three general sections. We'll start with John the Baptist's question to Jesus. Then we'll move on to Jesus' response to John and his question. And then we'll end with Jesus' broader instruction to the crowds about John and about what to make of all this. Let's start then with John the Baptist's question to Jesus. It's interesting, I think, to know what prompts John's question. What was causing this doubt to creep in John's heart and and mind? Look at verse 18. We get the answer right from the outset. 
All this gets started because the disciples of John the Baptist, verse 18, reported all these things to him. Reported what? Just take a gander backwards a few verses. John's been telling us all his gospel long, the things that Jesus has been doing and saying. Jesus' mighty works. John the Baptist's followers go and report to him that Jesus is healing the sick. That he is raising the dead. That's what we just got finished looking at the last time we were here in John's gospel together. That he's preaching the good news of the kingdom with unparalleled authority. Question. Why did they have to give him a report? And couldn't John the Baptist go and witness these things himself? Well, the answer is that he's, uh, he's a bit tied up at the moment. Like, literally tied up at the moment. If you go back to Luke chapter 3, we read in uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, by John the Baptist, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Why did John need to send others to see because he's contained, he's constrained, he's confined in, in prison. And spoiler alert, it's not going to end well for him there. I mean, it's very likely, isn't it, that John's questions, John's doubt have something to do about his circumstances. He was the forerunner. He was the messenger to go before the Messiah to proclaim the coming kingdom. No one's supposed to go down like this in John's mind. Perhaps his imprisonment had something to do with this question that he poses to Jesus. That's very plausible, but I think we see the most clear answer, at least the only one I can find in the Bible, in verse 18. Look with me, if you will, at the when of John's question. When did John pose this question to Jesus. Are you him? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? When was it? Verse 18. Well, it was when his disciples had heard everything that Jesus was doing and they went and told John in jail. That's when the question started to bubble up. Which means then, that in some way, John was struggling with some aspect of how Jesus was going about his messianic responsibilities. The Reformed Expository Commentary, I think, helpfully puts it this way. According to the reports John was getting in prison, Jesus was preaching sermons and performing miracles. But when would he get around to the really important stuff? Like overthrow, uh, overthrowing, excuse me, the religious establishment or inaugurating his kingdom. Remember, friends, John himself had prophesied that the Messiah would come with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Luke 3.16. This meant, of course, bringing salvation to his people. Of course, that was part of it, John knew. But it also meant bringing judgment to the enemies of God. Here's a little refresher for you of John the Baptist's prophetic announcement. Uh, if you're taking notes, this is Luke 3, 7 to 9. This is, this is just a sampling of John's 
teaching, as he went before the Messiah, preparing his way. Here's what John said the Messiah would do, Luke 3, 7 to 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that had come to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, Jesus, John's thinking, when are you going to deal with the vipers? When, Jesus, are you going to swing your axe of judgment? When, Jesus, are you going to bring the fire? Let's think about this for a moment. Was John wrong? Was John wrong in his prophetic pronouncement here in these words about the Christ? No. Jesus is going to deal with the vipers. Jesus is going to use his winnowing fork to separate the wheat from the chaff. Jesus does have an axe of judgment, and he will execute that judgment in his holy, consuming fire. But that wasn't his purpose, was it, at his first coming? The Son of Man, from his own mouth, Jesus says, came to seek and save the lost. John was rightly prophesying. John had right expectations about the dual nature of Jesus' coming. He came for salvation and he came for judgment. Only John is hearing reports of the salvation category. And he's scratching his head saying, when's, when's the axe fall? When do I break out of this jail? When does Jesus step onto his throne? I mean, when is that stuff coming? Well, it's coming, just not according to John's time or way, is it? I think before we move on, we can see some application here for our own lives, can we not? In 2023, can our immediate trials, friends, our very present personal pain and hardships sometimes cloud our vision of who God is or what he's doing. Can that happen? Yeah. You bet it can. Sometimes, if we're honest, we will admit that our own personal struggles and disappointments can fog our vision of the Lord and his ways. And we can, in the midst of our pain, we can lose sight of the big picture of what God's doing. Many of us will give God this. We believe that he's in control of what happens. But sometimes we have some serious struggles about the how and the when of God, of how God's going about accomplishing his purposes. Let's step out of the theoretical for a moment and get practical. We're sitting here at Friendship Community Church on this beautiful Lord's Day. Somehow it's June and... Sometimes I pray and ask God and pouring out my heart before him, asking the Lord, pleading with him to strengthen his church here at Friendship and, and throughout our nation, throughout, throughout the world. And I'm, I'm asking the Lord, why isn't your church stronger? Why is it easier to fill stadiums and concert halls with throngs of 
passionate, committed fans than it is to get people to gather together to worship the very creator who gave them life and breath. Why does the church seem so weak, Lord? How about this one? Many of us who've been walking with the Lord for a long time have, have shared the gospel time and time again with, with family and loved ones and, and, and friends. And our hearts are burdened and broken for those who we love who don't follow Christ. And we ask ourselves the question, why? Why, Lord? I mean, I'm sharing the gospel. I'm praying. I mean, like, ah, why don't they believe? Why is my marriage so hard, Lord? Even my Christian marriage. Why is work so hard and thankless? Why is my loved one still sick? Jesus, you know I've been praying. Jesus, if all power and authority belongs to you, then why don't you use it to fix this already? Ever ask that? See, John the Baptist, friends, struggled with this. And I think if you're honest, you do too. I know I do. It's imperative for us to see and hear Christ's answer to John's doubt. His answer for the ubiquitous tension of the, of the human experience. Jesus says and shows John, I am exactly what I said I would be. The answer as we will soon see, is read your Bible, John, and believe. That's the answer. Read your Bible and believe. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So, are you? Are you offended by who Jesus is and how he's chosen or perhaps not chosen to roll out his cosmic plan of redemption? Some of us struggle, like John. Knowing what God can do, knowing ultimately what he will do, what he's promised to do, but there's sin between the sheets, isn't there? And we struggle to understand God's timing and God's ways. And what we need to be reminded of, just like John, is the truth that uh, the Apostle Paul expresses elsewhere in Romans 11, 33-35. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Inscrutable, unknowable are his ways believe that? You can't figure him out, and neither can I. He's doing something at a higher level. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Not me. Not even John. Who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Answer, nobody. Don't be offended, because God's progress in redemptive history, indeed his progress in your own life and sanctification didn't take the path that you think it should take. Here's the real question. How did Jesus respond to John the Baptist's question? We see the answer here in verses 21 to 23. 
I think we see that Jesus answers John with a divine demonstration of what I'll call here show and tell. Isn't that what he does? Verse 21 is the show. Verse 22 is the tell. And then verse 23 is Jesus' conclusion on the matter. Let's start with verse 21. In that hour. In what hour? In the hour that the disciples of John came to Jesus asking, Hey, John the Baptist wants to know, are you he? Are you the one, Jesus, we should, we should be looking for? Or, or is there another yet coming? Are you the Messiah, Jesus? In that very hour, when that very question was posed, what's Jesus do? Well, he proves it, doesn't he? He performs miraculous signs and wonders. Jesus is going to send a response back to his messenger. But before he says a word, he proceeds to show them precisely who he is. Verse 21, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases and sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. Can you imagine? Hey, Jesus, John wants to know if you're the one. Jesus said, hold on. And then right there proceeds to cast demons out of the oppressed from their bondage. To heal and to restore sight to the blind. Miracles unfolding in front of their very eyes. Can you imagine? And then Jesus concludes his session of show and tell by effectively quoting scripture to them. Look at verse 22. Jesus gestures back to the messianic prophecies from the book of the great prophet Isaiah. Prophecies like Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, which is loosely what Jesus is quoting here in Luke 7. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Here we go. And the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Now, does that sound familiar? Well, it would have if you just watched it unfold in front of you. These were the very things that Jesus is doing. What's the point? What's Jesus saying? Well, he's saying to John and showing John, I am the one. I am indeed the Messiah. All those prophecies from the book of Isaiah, they point to me. And I'm going to show you right here and now that I've got the power to back up my claim. And then, after showing and telling, John the Baptist be a proxy through his messengers that he is indeed the Christ. Jesus gives John his punchline, his conclusion, if you will, here in verse 23. Jesus said, blessed. We've moved through the Beatitudes a few weeks back. I think Benjamin was preaching through Jesus' blessing statements. Here's another one. He gives it to John here. Blessed is the one, John, who is not offended by me. By the way, Isaiah's prophecy 
the Gospel of Isaiah, as, as it's sometimes called, also predicted that Christ would not only come in power and in glory for salvation, but also that he would be the source of great offense for many. You can go back and read Isaiah 8, and, and the Apostle Peter speaks a lot about this. We've spoken on this lately. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read scriptures telling us that, that the Messiah will also be a stone of stumbling. And get this, a rock of offense. That word offended that Jesus uses here in verse 23, scandalizo, sounds kind of like scandalize. That word offended can literally be translated into English to trip up or to entrap. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't trip up over me, John. Don't stumble over who I am or what I'm doing. Don't be offended, John, by my word or my ways. Jesus doesn't always do it like we would. Ain't right? Right? Here's John, the one prophesied in Malachi 3.1. John, the forerunner, and he's struggling too. He's got the same skin as you and me, and he's struggling with how Jesus is or isn't yet accomplishing these purposes in his lives. Friend, welcome to the club of the faithful or the unfaithful, depending upon the day. Don't we wrestle with this? We do. John did. Don't be offended by me and how I'm manifesting myself, John, and how I'm choosing to work. You've got my word, and I've given you conclusive proof. I am the Christ. Hold the line. Hold the line and believe. Jesus moves on here. There's a pivot point in the middle of the passage in verse 24. We see a major shift. John the Baptist's disciples go back to return the message to him. And once they've gone, Jesus turns to the crowds to help them and us make sense of all this. Side point, it's always been curious to me that it's not until after John's disciples leave that Jesus really takes the opportunity to build them up. I mean, did you catch that? When Jesus' disciples are there asking the question, Jesus gives proof, Jesus answers the question, Jesus says, don't be offended by me, John. Don't stumble on the stumbling block. And then they turn and leave with Jesus' answer. And Jesus proceeds to build him up. Not when they're there, after they've left. I don't know what to do with that. You just think on that on your own. Maybe you can come to some conclusions and, and share them with me later. It's always been curious to me. Jesus, however, does indeed give his very own assessment of this baptizer, John the Baptist, and his life and ministry. He starts with three simple questions, or really just one question framed in three different ways. He asks three different ways, who'd you go out to see? Was he, verse 24, a reed shaken by the wind? No way. John wasn't a fickle man, blown around by the culture or the pressures, the norms 
in society around him. John was a strong man. No broken reed was he. Was he, verse 25, a man dressed in soft or fine clothing? Jesus says, come on, you know better than that. Remember the camel's hair? Remember the locusts and the wild honey? Everyone knew John wasn't concerned with personal comfort or wealth or or status. So who was he? Who'd you go out to see, Jesus asked the third time. A prophet, verse 26? Yes, a prophet. And more than a prophet. Not only was John the Baptist a, a, a great prophet to point to the Messiah, he also, think about this, he also himself was the object of prophecy. Isn't that amazing? They were telling of the Messiah since Genesis 3.15. But there was also hundreds of years, even before John the Baptist's birth, prophetic pronouncements about John the Baptist. I mean, right? The, he was the one foretold. We've said it before. I'll just repeat it again. Malachi 3.1. He was the one to prepare a way. And then Jesus makes this mind-boggling, I think it's mind-boggling, statement in verse 28. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All right, what what is going on here? (laughs) Well, think about this for a minute. If we were going to look at things from a merely human vantage point, we will concede there has never been one, Jesus says, in the history of the human race who was greater than John the Baptist. Wow. Wow. That's saying something. No one born of woman, which would make everyone except Adam, greater than John. That's really saying something. I like how Philip Ryken describes it. He says, he's the greatest. John the Baptist is the greatest of merely mortal men. The question becomes, why? Why was John the Baptist so great? Was it because of his self-denial? Was it because of his personal holiness? Was it his courage or maybe his purity or or something else? We've got to ask ourselves, what rationale does Jesus give for John's greatness? And he gives one. Look at verse 27. Why is he great? Well, he's great because he's the forerunner of the Messiah. In other words, follow me here. The thing that made John the Baptist so great was his attachment to Jesus. The thing that made John the Baptist so great was his affiliation with the Christ. Every prophet before John had looked ahead to Jesus. But John was more than a prophet. He got to see him. He got to point to Jesus and say before the watching world, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes us away, the sin of the world. More than a prophet. And yet, verse 28, somehow, the one who's least in God's kingdom 
is greater than John. How? I mean, how would that even be possible? Well, for the very same reason that John was great. We can be greater. We can, in a sense, have a higher status because of our attachment and affiliation with Jesus. Friends, we have seen and experienced the fullness of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our everyday reality is greater than what John the Baptist could have ever conceived or dreamed. Dear Christian, consider all over again what you have in Jesus. Consider the matchless mercy that you have seen in his death on the cross for our sins. Consider the victory that you have witnessed as he rose from the grave, trampling over the powers of sin and death. Consider his ascension into heaven, which we celebrate every week as we gather on the day he rose on the Lord's day. Pouring out his own spirit that was last week, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of you and me, never to depart. If you know Christ, sealing us, keeping us safe for the day of salvation when we receive our eternal inheritance. Dear Christian, the things that you know, the things that you have seen and tasted, are greater than even John, than even the baptizer could have imagined. No, perhaps you've not been whisked up like the Apostle Paul to the third heaven, but oh, the surpassing greatness of the revelation you have received. Sometimes I think, as I look at my own life, I can be so prone to sulk. I hate that. You feel that too? I can be so prone to spiritual sulking. I was thinking about a way to apply this passage to my life that Jesus would presume to say, there's not a greater man born than John, and you, new covenant believer, you follower of Jesus, you've got it better. And I was just thinking about how Man, I can, in light of such a beautiful, glorious reality, so often focus on the Eeyore aspects of life. Here's one way to apply this verse to your life, friends. Be thankful. And that, the instruction in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, be joyful always. Pray continually. Be thankful in all circumstances. Why? Because this is God's will for you. It's God's will for my life. I just, I just want to follow you, God. Here's God's will for your life. Be thankful. <coughs> Be joyful. Be prayerful. Because when you understand what Jesus has done and what that means for you, it changes everything. I was laughing. I think this was last evening. I don't know when, when this was. My family and I just uh, got back from a whirlwind trip to Lancaster. Had a great time. We went out to Sight and Sound Theater. 
and saw Moses there with the kiddos. It was great. Uh, just uh, uh, production. I'm just trying to find ways to point our kids to the Lord and find fun, engaging ways to do that. Some of you have seen that production or or even going out uh, soon to do that. We were away at this special place. We went to see this amazing show. And then afterwards, we go to this mini golf place there in, um, in um, Lancaster. And uh, my father-in-law is desperately hoping that I tell you about my mini golf game. Just so we can quote. Um, I'm not going to do that. Didn't do that well. Um, but, uh, but there was a moment early on as we were there at the, the mini golf course where uh, one of our children, who will remain nameless, <laughs> was just crying. I mean, just like, just crying about everything. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Why are you crying? Do you understand how good you have it? Do you understand everything we've done to give you an amazing day? Why are you crying? Of course, I'm not, I would never presume um, to discount in our lives the legitimate grief and the pain that we walk through in life. I'm not talking about this kind of life, uh, grief. What I'm talking about is the nonsense, the funk that I get into, and I would guess that some of you are guilty too, of walking day in and day out, woe is me. Life is so hard. Just hear the words of Jesus. Do you understand what he's done for you? Why are you crying? <laughs> to be fair to our child, he ended the evening with a great time. But I saw in his pouting a reflection of my own spiritual attitude at times. And it was convicting to me. You've got it so good in Christ. I just want to keep on reminding you of that, Friendship Community Church. You have it so good in Jesus. Now, he ends, verses 29 to 35, with a little parable. Jesus is comparing the people of this generation to, uh, to little bossy children who are playing games in the open marketplace. But the problem is, that neither Jesus nor John the Baptist, his messenger, will play by their rules. One biblical scholar, Daryl Bach, candidly refers to this as the, the parable of the brats. I like that. The parable of the brats. These brats are upset because neither Jesus nor John the Baptist will take their cues from them. So they play the flute. But Jesus won't dance to their tune, will he? So then they sing a dirge, but Jesus won't weep, will he? You see, the thing about God is, he doesn't march to our tune. He's the one who sets the cadence, and we march to it. These religious leaders only have ears to hear God's messengers if they're telling them what they want to hear. Isn't that right? Boy, oh boy. Human nature hasn't changed much in 2,000 years, has it? It's just like Scripture says will happen in the last days. 1 Timothy 3, excuse me, 1 Timothy 4, 3. I think this one's on the screen. Thank you, Logan. For the time is coming 
when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Sound familiar, America? There always is and always has been a form of religion, I'll put religion in air quotes, that seeks to conform to the mores and the message of the time. I'm reminded of that time in Second Chronicles 18 when King Ahab, wicked King Ahab, says to Jehoshaphat, who said, don't you have a real prophet of God you can, you can appeal to? And King Ahab says, yes, there's one man whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. Forget Ahab, whether Micaiah is telling you the truth from God or not. He just wants you to prophesy something good. It's always about telling you what you already want to hear, isn't it? That was Ahab's problem. That's the problem of our society as well. Friends, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go off on too much of a rabbit trail. But let me simply by way of application say, beware of the brand of Christianity that has become bosom buddies with the world with its values and priorities. It's June. And all around us on our web pages and on our billboards we hear and see everywhere, love is love. And <laughs> Did you know you have the ability to pick whatever gender you want now? Forget that God made you in his image that he was the author of your life, and he chose. Forget what his word says about how life and love and eternity ought to work. Friends, we don't have time to chase this very big rabbit. But we must not, we dare not dance to the song of culture. Christ has told us what to believe, and there we stand. Are some offended at this notion? <laughs> oh, yeah. Some will be. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't be offended at me, John. I'm going to offend the cultural sensibilities of some people. I'm going to offend you, John, and your own idea of who I should be and how I should come. Don't be offended. I'm the Messiah. I call the shots. I beg of you, don't be offended by the king. One more, and then communion. Jesus gives a final observation, I think, or a final observation I'll make about his statements, and then a final application about what to do about it. Uh, notice, friends, what we see here in these latter verses, what I'll call 
the serious heart condition of persistent unbelief. Persistent unbelief. Jesus says, you know, it's funny, guys. John came, and he was much too austere for you. He wasn't eating. He wasn't drinking. He wasn't following your rules. He was so strange. He was so radical and out there in his commitment to God that you concluded this is not natural. He must have a demon. John wasn't eating and drinking enough. And then they turn around at Jesus, and what do they say to him? Jesus, you're eating and drinking too much. Jesus goes too far for them. He's eating with the tax collectors and and sinners, whose lives, by the way, are being transformed in his very presence. If John was indulging too little, Jesus, in their estimation, was indulging too much. How's that old saying go? You're darned if you do, and you're darned if you don't. Why? Because they wanted to play the song. They wanted to play the flute and have Jesus dance. They wanted to play the dirge and have Jesus weep, and Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, it's not how this works. Verse 35. In contrast to these fickle people who don't know what they want outside of what their own hearts are telling them, Jesus says wisdom is justified. Wisdom is known by her children. In other words, by what she produces. Jesus is proceeding to justify the tax collectors and the sinners because of their transformed lives. Transformed by wisdom, transformed by his own presence. While the religious elites go on persisting in their unbelief. There is a kind of unbelief, isn't there? That no matter what you do or say, we'll just never believe. You met that person? It's interesting. Apologetics is interesting. You know, these debates between Christians and non-Christians, I guess they've got their place. But I've never once heard about one of those where the guy on the other end of the debate realizes the folly of his unbelief and then says, with all of the evidence around him, with all the stars in the sky, Romans 1, with creation screaming the existence of God. And the guy on the other side of the podium says, you know what? I guess you're right. Fall at my feet and worship Jesus right now. No, he just changes his argument. He just focuses on something different. There is something sad about a stony heart that persists in its unbelief. John doesn't eat enough. Jesus doesn't eat. He's too much. You can't make these people happy, nor should you try. What's the anecdote? What's the only way to turn a, a stony heart into a heart of flesh? Sometimes these kind of only come out with prayer. God, God's miracle of salvation is the only way salvation happens. It's the only way a, a cold heart, blind eyes, a dead body. <laughs> you know, dead people don't do much, including make decisions. 
What do they need? They don't need more evidence. They need to believe what Jesus has said. That's, that's it. He's given us everything necessary for life and godliness. There is a persistence of unbelief that we see here. God is the only one who can fix that. Let's hit the last application, and then we'll partake of the Lord's table together. Before we close our Bibles, let's please not forget the big picture here. I hope you find this encouraging that even John the Baptist, listen now, the greatest man in a natural sense to ever be born of a woman. Even his faith was prone to wander. Friends, the message of Christianity is not, you must believe perfectly. It's not it. Did John? No. Will you? The message of Christianity is not you must believe perfectly. The message of Christianity is you must believe in the perfect one. The message of Christianity is you must have flawless faith. No, it's you've got to have faith in the flawless one. That's why I love that song we sang earlier today. He will hold me fast. I love that. When I fear, my faith will fail. You fear that? I fear that. Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail. How many times has he prevailed in my life? What's the answer? Buck up, Zeb. No. He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. It is. He must hold me fast. In the chorus, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. 